and welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Magic Man by Heart. And I've got Rock and Roll Hall of Famer here, Steve Fossen, and founder, importantly founder member of Heart here, to go over his time in the group as well as covering his more recent activities, keeping the music of Heart alive with Heart by Heart. Welcome, Steve. Hello. Glad to be here. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. And I don't know how many people know this, but the the roots of Heart go into the late 60s, before the Wilson sisters. You know, you were one of the founder members of that band that eventually kind of morphed into what we now know as Heart. Yeah. So in 1967, Roger Fisher and I, we started a band for 1967. It was called The Army. And then uh, in 1968, we uh, changed the band to White Heart. In 1969, we uh, shortened it to Heart. And we played around for a few years in the Seattle area, which is where we're from, Seattle, Washington. And then in 1971, we met Anne, and uh, we put together a cover band, and that cover band was called Hocus Pocus. And we uh, toured around the Pacific Northwest for eight months. And then uh, in January of uh, 1972, we all emigrated to uh, Canada. And uh, the rest, they say, is history. We, <laughs> We actually changed the name back to Heart officially on April 21st, 1972. And I've heard that the music, you know, originally in Heart before the, the Wilson sisters was a bit more, was it more progressive? Yeah, we had uh, we had a very progressive time in, you know, 69, 70 range. We had a very uh, eclectic bunch of musicians with us, let's say, and we all, we all lived in a band house together and, uh, you know, how the shenanigans of... Uh, young men living together we all uh but we took music very seriously and we would uh we save up our money because we were very poor and we'd buy the latest album and we'd all have a discussion oh which one should we get you know because we could only afford a couple of and we'd go home and uh do the uh correct amount of libations so to speak and we'd put the album on and then no one would make a peep for 45 minutes to an hour and a half however long the album lasts and uh, and then we'd sit around and talk about it and try to figure out how we can be us as musicians can capture that magic. And, you know, that's the way it was back then. People, uh, the standards are very high mm. for music and musicians. And we wanted to and we knew that if we wanted to be competitive, we had to have high standards, too. So that was one of the reasons why when you get to the debut Dreamboat Annie that there was so much precision and power in the music that you recorded because you'd had all those years playing in bars and and kind of learning your chops then? Yeah well the thing of it is with when we moved to Canada we put together a bar band basically we chose a bunch of our favorite artists and we played four hours four sets of music from our favorite artists and we had a big led zeppelin medley that we had we put in there and we came became very popular in the lower british columbia area so we were playing all the time so we would go you back in those days you'd set up on monday you'd play monday through saturday and sometimes you'd, be, you'd even stay in the same club for two weeks in a row so that kind of uh practice and you know going over it every night of the week we just solidified into this machine music machine and uh by the time flicker mike flicker um started to produce us we it was like okay what do you want us to do <laughs> we we uh pretty much could play uh with confidence and and conviction you know almost every time we picked up our instruments and i've read that magic man was 
one of the first tracks that you recorded for the album? Is that yeah, that was my first track on the album that I recorded, and I actually, you know, came up with uh, quite a bit of the uh, part, the lead part where the 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 Moog solo and the guitar solos, and in the middle, I came up with those lines in there, and kind of the vibe of the song too is when I first heard it, it was acoustic kind of song, and so we wanted to rock it up, and I guess we succeeded. Magic Man is one of the most uh, highly touted uh, uh, radio songs ever. It's one of the highest rated ones ever. So that, and that means that once it starts, people don't switch the channel. They, they listen to the whole thing. It, the bass drives that track forward as well. It's one of the things that underpins that whole that whole song. Yeah. Um, and I was very fortunate when I was a young man to uh, be able to uh, – it was kind of an accident. I don't know how it happened, but I found myself a 1959 Fender Precision bass, and uh, you know, and at the time I had flat wound strings on it, and those are very sought after, famous uh, era for the Fender bass, and I was very fortunate to have one at the time, and I still have it, and it's influenced by playing and uh, my thoughts about uh, bass. And everything ever since. And one of the the things that the Wilson sisters brought, or, or Nancy Wilson in particular, was that that acoustic sound, but powered with that electric edge. And Crazy on You, and it's kind of one of those songs that embodies that. You know, there's that acoustic start to that, and then it, then it builds. Yeah. Well, we had two excellent guitar players, Roger Fisher and Howard Lees. and so and Nancy, of course, was an excellent guitar player too. But those two were very electric oriented and nancy and especially in the beginning was very acoustic oriented so it all worked out you know really nice and uh like i said like i say it back at the time to be the bass player with all those talented uh other guitar players it was challenging to find a place to to fit in (laughs) but uh you know you have to you know, one of the things that I learned and believed in was that the bass uh, is a supporting instrument. And the thing you do not want to do is detract from the song by trying to overplay or show off. Because uh, there are certain times when you can show off and, and everything, but for the most part, you want to stay in the pocket and uh, support, especially the singer and, and the guitar players and, and the acoustic guitar and the drums. So that's been my philosophy all these years.
you're also down as co-writing Sing Child on uh, Dreamboat Annie. Yes. What was the, the writing process and, and spark there? Well, Roger Fisher and I, we, we came up with uh, different parts that fit together. And then uh, Anne wrote some the words and everything. And then she... Uh, one thing about Anne, when she throws when she throws her hat in the ring, she's all in. So you know, most of the songs were um, her compositions or her and Nancy compositions. So when it came time to do uh, Roger Fisher C. Fawson compositions, she was she was all in, and I appreciate that. And that was something that I really admire about about her all these years. She's very committed, and she you know she doesn't she's got a very zen outlook on music and. So when she's presented something to do, she does it at the best of her ability. So in those early years and, and recording the album, you were living in a cottage together? Is that is that correct? Or Well, we the, the cottage was more of the time when we were um, we first got to Vancouver, Vancouver area. We were living in West Van in a cottage to all together. And that's where we put together the set that, uh, that we ended up uh, playing live a lot. And that got us started. And then uh, as we became more popular, of course, we made a little bit more money. So then everyone could afford to have a, have their own place. But I remember the first time uh, we got there in, you know, January, February, March, in, in that range. And and we started putting together the set. And it was, uh, it was very lean times. Mm. I remember the first gig that we had, which was sometime in I, I, maybe it was midsummer of uh, 1972 uh, I think we made ten dollars a piece <laughs> and um, I remember thinking geez I'm going to be able to afford a toothbrush now it's amazing to think the humble beginnings of heart yeah. compared to where you ended up and actually now in terms of the status in, in rock and roll hall of fame I know yeah it's it's the rock and roll hall of fame didn't even exist when we hmm. put the band together and you know we never even thought that something like that would ever happen and then uh, it did which was great and but at the same time it was all awards are uh i mean people have different opinions about awards and stuff and and if your favorite band doesn't get in and nominated every year then you know then you think that the hall of fame is crap well you know i had kind of ambivalent feeling about uh, the hall of fame for a number of years and, and then i started appreciating what they were doing and then we got nominated and then i was all in <laughs> <laughs> So, and right now, I mean, uh, Summer, my wife and the lead singer of Heart by Heart, we've been back to uh, Cleveland several times to hang out at the museum. And we have some very good friends that work there. And then we also have some other really good friends in Cleveland. And the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is full of very dedicated, um, hardworking people. You know, they can't do everything, but they what they do, they do really great. I'm so proud to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm. I mean, it's a nice thing to be able to say, hey, by the way, <laughs> I'm in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
The next track is, is Heartless, and um, another one of those tracks that um, many people associate with the band. But it fits on what is a bit of a, a strange album magazine. But I understand that was, while Heartless was one of the tracks that was kind of fully recorded at that time, you had problems with the record company and it, the album ended up being something that they put together. Yeah, they initially released it was on their own volition, you know, mixing it and deciding the order of the songs and stuff all by themselves. And uh, we actually had that stopped. Um, and then we uh, got the masters back and we kind of remixed it. And uh, I think we changed the order a little bit and kept some stuff in, maybe kept a little bit of stuff out. I don't know. But, it, you know, the uh, the original uh, Mushroom record mix, is it's out there. Some people like it better than the, the mix that we came up with, and, you know, because everybody's got an opinion, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so Heartless, so here's what happened. We were, um, we in March, we started off uh, touring behind Dreamboat Annie, and we were flying all over the place, driving all over the place, to, and then we, we, you know, they'd say, okay, we got a couple weeks off, so we go home, and we think, oh, we're going to get some I got to get some sleep. I got to mow the lawn, you know, whatever. And uh, we get a call the next day. Oh, hey, we booked some studio time. So come on down to the studio and we're going to record Heartless. And we're going like, oh, okay, well, see you there. You know, it was kind of something that we threw together, not threw together, but had to do in between uh, stints going out on the road. Yeah. 
And, and, if, and during uh, 1976, Hart played 150 dates wow. around um, America and Canada and U- ending up in Europe. Mm. We opened up for Nazareth all, all up throughout uh, free Europe, which was fun and interesting because, you know, I don't know if you know anything about Nazareth, but they're very colorful people and they were last <laughs> to, to hang out with. But anyway, so Heartless, that was one where I used my jazz bass, my Fender jazz bass. Oh. And I had found, uh, there was this, a music store that down the street from where I lived in New Westminster, British Columbia, that had uh, a jazz bass in the window. And it had never been sold since 1975. So I went down and made a deal and I got this still pristine, unplayed, basically, Fender bass. And I bought it in, I think, like 73 or something. So it was, a no, you know, a number of years old, but not quite vintage or anything. But anyway, it was, a, and it ended up being a very, very, very nice jazz bass. So, I mean, every bass you pick up is different. Some have loud mm. pickups than the others. Some have better tone than the others. And this one had loud, good tone pickups and when uh, Mike Flicker heard it, he said, wow, that's that's really cool. And so that's what I recorded Heartless with. And uh, I used a kind of a, a new technique that was uh, being that I think Larry Graham had founded where you pull on the string and you pop it kind of. So I used that for uh, Heartless.
what bass did you use on Barracuda then? Because it's another one of those tracks with a real driving bass on. That ended up being a, uh, a 1976 Alembic long scale bass. Right. So and so you get that extra inch or two in the in the string length, and it gets it has a little bit deeper push to it. And unfortunately, I ended up selling that bass because uh, at the time I was uh, I don't know I was just I didn't care. My my time and heart I thought was was done and heart was in a, a kind of a slump and I thought oh, I get it who cares I'm gonna get rid of it so but I wish I still had it. By the time you re- you were recording the album Little Queen that you must have been confident in the studio and given the band's success by then. Yeah well okay so here's what happened we so I told you that we recorded the you know recorded Heartless uh, magazine hmm. let's see there's Devil Delight and one other one I can't remember but anyway four or five songs for the album that was going to be magazine then the problems started with uh, Mushroom Records which you know people want to talk about it or it's in the you know you can read about it but anyways we mm. managed to get ourselves uh, extracted from from Mushroom Records and we got a big advance from Columbia at the time and they had a sub subdivision called Portrait Records and so they put us on Portrait Records it was Dreamboat Annie and Magazine and then we started Little Queen and but and but Little Queen ended up being number 2 because we decided that we didn't want magazine competing with Little Queen so we put Little Queen out I mean uh, magazine out a little bit later anyway by then yeah we were way more confident in the studio I mean during uh, especially Dreamboat Annie uh, Mike Flicker was like what he said was like a message from God you know and so what he said went and you know he kept very tight control of of everything that went on yeah. every track every noise every part everything he get really good track of which was good because you know we were novices basically at, at the recording game um him and howard um uh howard and him were uh had a band in la together and when they got to uh, vancouver howard was a studio uh, musician for mike and that's how we met him he ended up doing some parts on Dreamboat Annie. We thought, well, who's going to play that? He said, well, let's just hire Howard. So that's how he got in the band. So basically, you were a lot more confident and, and um, had a bit more role in the sort of production and, and sound of the process because you were more uh, familiar with the studio and, and, and experienced and kind of grew into that. Yeah, well, okay. So, the, and in the transition between the Dreamboat Annie era, magazine era, to the Little Queen era, era we were using a 16 track ah. for Dreamboat Annie and magazine. So every single thing had to be so planned out because if you wanted some overdubs or anything, they had you had to figure out a track to put it on. So the tambourine track would turn into an acoustic track for a little while and then turn back to the tambourine. Well, you know, stuff like that. So we had to plan it all out, you know, just like George Martin did with the Beatles, but he only had four tracks. So anyway, we had 32 tracks or whatever for for Little Queen. So that made it a little easier. But during Dreamboat Annie, we all had to um, we were all giving given a fader and some EQ. And so everybody had to do their moves and do it right. So we recorded or we mastered uh, Dreamboat Annie. 30 seconds at a time. So we'd do 30 seconds. Everyone would do their moves and volume switches and, you know, whatever. And then we'd listen to it back and make sure it was good. And then uh, Rolf, our engineer, he would splice it together. And then we'd make sure the splice was good. Then we move on to the next 30 seconds. 
you're down as co-writing the the title track of Little Queen as well. Yes, yeah, and Little Queen is is a great song, and uh, and during the the touring for Dreamboat Annie, our album went gold in in uh, June. It went platinum in August and double platinum by November. And because we were in a tiffle with the record company, we were living, all of us were only making $200 a week. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So when we signed with Portrait, we had a big meeting and uh, they passed out checkbooks and stuff. And and then they gave us each a piece of paper and said, yeah, yeah. So this morning you were, uh, $250,000 was deposited into your account. So we were like, oh, Okay. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so we not only were we confident in our abilities and our we knew our way around the studio more, but we were actually being, you know, financially rewarded for all the work we'd done all, the, all, all these years. So it was great. With tracks like Little Queen, you helped shape that material as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, all, all the stuff, even if it was written by Anna and Nancy, still had a lot of input from the guys as far as... Um, arrangement and parts fitting together and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Uh, it, there's a lot of people that won't, some people that won't admit it, but Howard, he's musically genius. And, you know, Raj had a great, some great ideas and Mike DeRozier drumming. He was, uh, he had some great things to, to contribute. We all contributed as much as we could. And I think it really, that band atmosphere, that band contribution made the songs better than they would have been had it, had it just been, Hard guns.
sound of the band continued to evolve with the album uh, Dog and Butterfly and uh, Cook With Fire is one of the more exciting tracks on that album. Yes, it is. And uh, that I got back to my jazz bass on that one. Oh. And uh, the night that we recorded it, I think it was in Memphis, and uh, Bill Wyman was on stage. He, he came down to see us and he was on stage. So I was like, okay, one of my heroes, one of my biggest heroes, Bill Wyman. And biggest influences too. He was sitting there, you know, on stage and I was going, Oh my God, it was, you know, nerve wracking, but it's, you know, we did it or I did it, my party. But yeah, it's, it's a great song. It was a great opening song for, for our concerts that summer. So we're happy, very happy with it.
the track straight on. We were talking at the start about how the band sounded and that you were all together, but that song in particular, the tightness of of the group on that song is it's like a metronome. Yeah, well, the you know there are several guitars on there, but they're so well placed and so well everybody. Uh, played so sparsely that you you know you hear one guitar over here and then you hear another guitar over here but it sounds if you don't pay attention to where it is it sounds like it's the same but yeah so uh we had i had that track the drum track for a couple of weeks before i actually recorded my part so one of my goals was to i had a little four track uh uh so i would practice and practice and practice and go and try to make up stuff that really fit in there so I really worked on that part a lot, so I was happy with it. He's got a little bit of funk to it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's back when, uh, you know, disco was was out there, and if you could get yourself, uh, get, get played in the discos and get people dancing to your music, that was a good thing.
So as we get to Baby Lestrange, Roger had left by then, hadn't, hadn't he? So thing, things were starting to not be the harmonious unit that it was just a few years earlier. Yeah, well, what happened was, uh, well, Nancy and Roger kind of fell out of the, their relationship. And then Nancy uh, started the, a relationship with Mike DeRozier. And it was very hard for Roger to uh, to relate to what was going on. And a lot of a lot of things about Roger's playing was uh, the edge of it was tempered a little bit by his relationship with Nancy, and because they would work on stuff together, and they and she could and, and he could come up with stuff that really fit nice together. Well, when he lost that relationship with Nancy, then he got very um, I don't know how to put it that's nice but anyway he would he'd come to the studio and he and the parts that he would play would be totally different from the parts that he was playing the time when we were learning the song a couple of days before and so it was very hard to uh to settle in on anything when you know things are changing total all the time so and he was you know and the the, the air and the vibe between you know roger nancy and mike was very strange and you know, it's probably better, best for the band if he uh, maybe got out of the scene. And plus, you know, the the whole thing I think was was instigated by infidelity by Roger. And at the same time, his brother uh, Mike, who was uh, Anne's boyfriend at the time, had some infidelity going on there too. So they were the girls were totally disappointed in their two former boyfriends. So it was probably better to that the vibe was very strange so they both kind of left at the same time or very close to each other i assume that's the thing when there's relationships in a band or or the the band set up while those relationships are strong it can work but when those relationships fail that that threatens the band or the band unit yeah and you know and especially you know infidelity it's like a, a betrayal yeah and that betrayal is hard to get over i mean if you change a little bit artistically and and you're not quite as as uh you know because love i've discovered i'm 71 years old and love it evolves it goes you know when you first meet somebody it's one kind of love and then it goes into a different kind of love and then that keeps evolving and that and the love doesn't it's still strong and it doesn't go away but it's different it's not the same you know it's not the same and uh it matures and as long as relationships are maturing together that's fine but when there's the betrayal and infidelity it's that puts a big chink in the you know it's like a big dip in the curve and it's hard to recover from that i don't know of many people who do but there are some people who do but i'm not going to chance it anymore Well, it gets me thinking of Johnny B. Good 
touched on Heart Playing Live so it feels like the right thing to play a track from the Greatest Hits Live album and um, Rock and Roll, the Led Zeppelin cover seems to be a, a from listening to that album the power of, of you guys live must have been something else Yeah, yeah and like I told you before we had a big Led Zeppelin medley that we toured and we played clubs with for years and years and um, you know of course John Paul Jones he's another one of my big influences and uh you know i just love his playing and, and I, him and bonham would kind of set the standard for bass and drums in, in, in my opinion as along with paul mccartney and ringo too and bill wyman and and uh, charlie too so they kind of set the table for for us and we just knew how to uh you know you you know how to fit the guitars and the bass and the drums in there so it sounds huge a lot of the the influences of the group seem to be British. Yeah, well, you know, when I was younger, I was, uh, you know, I was really influenced by, of course, Ricky Nelson, Elvis, uh, Roy Orbison, Everly Brothers, all that stuff, and it, that inspired my uh, emotions a lot. And then when uh, when I heard when I first heard the Beatles, that inspired not only my emotions but my but the musicality that all of a sudden it, as a musicality thing went off in my brain. And so what happened was the British bands from that era listened to American music. And then the Americans listened to then in the next era, the Americans listened to the British music. So, it, you know, it kind of went back and forth. So, that, we, yeah, we were very influenced by British um, bands and musicians. Uh, um, Moody Blues was a big one in our uh, the Animals, Yardbirds. 
I mean, we loved all those bands and, you know, we thought they were the greatest. So that we listened to them. Oh, yeah. And they listened to, you know, the earlier stuff that we, you know, we listened to it too. But at the same time, we were highly influenced by the British invasion, as we called it over here. But took it into the 70s and, and gave it that fuller sound and yeah. made it your own. Yeah, it's that's that's one thing about um, that. Like I said earlier, in the, that era, people demanded of the bands that they that they have some sort of uh, I don't know what it, to call it, but some sort of spirituality about the music or some kind of deeper feeling in the music than just you know just playing your notes or just singing the notes or singing the song or whatever. So we we really tried to uh, emotionalize everything that we did.
By the time we get to the early 80s or, or 1980-ish and we get to Private Audition and one of the final singles of what is kind of the original Heart era, by that period, did you feel that things had, weren't what they were five, ten years before? Oh, definitely not. Definitely. They were definitely different. And Mike DeRozier was having a, a tough time um, trying to you know, influence the us to go in a in a more hard rock, harder rock um, direction, and and Anne and Nancy were going kind of the opposite way in a way. So it was causing a lot of friction, and that friction and um, people were having you know there was a lot of uh, substances hanging around, mm. and um, people when they're involved in substances they're. Emotions kind of get stilted, stunted in a, in, a, in a bit. For me, it was hard to be around the scene. Anne and Nancy were used to people, you know, fawning on them and yeah. and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we'd been around since, the <laughs> since you know, 1971 is when I met since Anne. you're in that cottage. Yeah. So, I mean, and you can imagine I'm being in a small little place that you know everything about somebody so yeah but anyway it was you know it was hard for me and plus at the time i was going through some personal you know stuff of my own and being uh you know getting getting out of the band was almost a relief in a lot of ways uh it was kind of nice in a way because it, it took the pressure off and then i was able to build my life back up in in a way that was more more my own creation instead of, uh, you know, the competition creation with the rest of the group. You, Roger, and Mike played, ultimately played in, was it Alias? Yes, we did, yeah. Very successful as well. Yeah, that was, you know, it, we did, uh, we opened up for a lot of bands around uh, Canada and did a, did a tour of uh, Canada. For, we opened up for REO. 
Um, we played some big TV shows. Uh, we did the Tonight Show a couple times. We did Rick D's. We did uh, the Juno Awards up in uh, Vancouver one year. And uh, it started off very up and up and everything. But as time went on, you know, sometimes you go through the, all the, the processes really fast. And then always, you kind of go, oh, this ain't, this is, we got on the downside and then there was no turning back.
So what did you do after Alias then? Did you quit the music industry or did you yeah, carry on? I, well, I was, uh, you know, fairly uh, jaded by my experiences. And so, and that's when uh, uh, grunge was very big in Seattle. And I, you know, and I was excited about that music. And so I was dragging my sorry ass downtown <laughs> and drinking a lot of uh, beer and everything else and substances too. And having a great time, don't get me wrong, I was having a great time, but uh, I was self-destructing, basically. But it was fun. And, you know, because I saw Pearl Jam in a club. Mm. I got to see sound, you know, I was on stage, not playing with them, but I was on stage watching Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and all those bands. It was so great to see them in those early days. Mm. So I was having a great time. And, you know, I was at parties with some people. And I was thinking to myself, geez, this is this is going nowhere because I was, you know, wasting my time drinking and everything else. So uh, one night I stayed up. It was in the summertime and I stayed up all night being destructive. And in the morning time, uh, it was in this apartment that had very thick uh, curtains. So somebody whipped open the curtain and it was like the sun was shining. and It was so bright. I thought, how did that happen? Well, all of a sudden it's it's daytime. And I so I drove home. And, uh, and on the way home, I thought, this is it. Something's got to give here. And, I, it's, and I'm giving it. So I changed that day. I changed. And then I started uh, hiking. There's all kinds of mountains and trails and everything around uh, Washington State. So I started doing that. And, that, and you know, I did that for 10 years. And it kind of cleared my head out and uh, got my health back. And then um, I met Summer. And uh, when I met Summer and... She was like, come on, play your bass. Come on. <laughs> and so I'd be playing my bass and she would sing along because I, I could play. Uh, we'd do Dog a Butterfly and, and Crazy on You and, and different songs like that. And she would sing. You know, I would play the bass and she would sing. And then people heard about it and they would say, hey, well, grab that bass over there and let's hear what, you know. So then we started getting hired as a duo around you know different clubs and bistros and stuff around seattle and then we got a call from a guy up in uh, anchorage alaska that wanted us to open up for dwight yoakam at a concert he was giving, uh, putting on up there and we said oh that'd be fun but then we thought well maybe a duo is a little light so we asked mike derosier and randy hansen i don't know if you've ever heard of him yeah he's a, a hendrix artist and they said sure yeah we'll put together sets so we put together a 45 minute set of heart material had it all ready to go, and then Dwight canceled the, the show. But we had a band. so And then people heard about us, and booking agents heard about us around town. And the next thing you know, we're playing all around Seattle and Washington. And and then we make a website, and the website, people say, oh, Mike DeRocher and Steve Lawson are in there. And then, hmm. so we, then we started getting hired up, you know, on the East Coast. And then one thing led to another, and pretty, now we're, we get to tour until the COVID. Yeah. We got to tour all over America. So we're just hanging in there waiting. But yeah, so Summer um, inspired me to get back into uh, playing. And I'm really gr glad she did because we've been playing with Lizzie and Chad and, and Mike and Summer. I mean, it's been so fun. You know, we go to all these really cool cities all across America and uh, love it. It's fun. Our final track is, is Heart by Heart's version of Dog and Butterfly. And it's very faithful to the original. And to hear you guys live, it does feel authentic. Yeah, well, that's our, that's our goal because we knew that uh, Anne and Nancy, their musicians, uh, 
want to uh they think they're improving on the arrangements and the songs and everything and you know there's nothing like nancy playing guitar and there's nothing like Anne singing to those songs there's i mean there's nothing like it but with Mike and I playing our parts, and, and uh, we encourage Lizzie and Chad to play their parts exactly like Howard and Nancy and, and Roger did. Uh, and then we, you know, Anne, uh, Summer has a, a, tim- a similar timbre to Anne, but we, she has, t- has her own take on, this, on her singing, too. A little bit different. But our goal is to reproduce the uh, heart material exactly like it was recorded, exactly like people remember it. Because we want to create the nostalgia that people feel when they, like if you put on an old record and you hear it and you think, oh, the time, you know, that was nice back then. So we have, we want our audiences to experience that when they see us live. Steve, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and I really appreciate the time that you've taken to talk to me and to the listeners today to hear the the story of Heart by one of its founder members and co-songwriters. And I wish you all the best with ongoing success with Heart by Heart. And hopefully, post-COVID, all the gigs can start again and you can get back going around America playing the songs to the fans. Well, I think people in England would would love to hear us too. Absolutely. We need to get you over. Yeah. Jason, I have to thank you too. I mean, there's a lot of years in there where I was pretty much way 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 in the background but i really appreciate uh you doing this interview with me because it's going to be there forever it will that's the end and uh, i'm really appreciated and i'm glad to be able to share my story with everyone thank you take care all right bye-bye and there i was with the old man stranded again so off i'd ran a young world crashing around me No possibilities of getting what I need He looked at me and smiled Said, no, 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 child See the dog and butterfly Up in the air he liked to fly The dog and butterfly
Another night in the strange town Moonlight holding me lie just down A voice of confusion inside of me Just begging to go back Where I'm free Feels like I'm through And the old man's words are true See the dog and butterfly Up in the air he liked to fly The dog and butterfly Below she had to try She brought them down to the warm side down With a little tear in her Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.